Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written. He commanded his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfil what was written, what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Thanks, Robin. Well, this morning we are kicking off a journey through Matthew's Gospel and we're going to be zeroing in on the message of Jesus, those bits that some Bibles put in red letters. Now, we're not doing this because the red letters are more God's word than the other bits or more important than the life of Jesus, his actions, or even the narrative that provides the context. In fact, the last time we did Matthew's Gospel together as a church, we covered the big story and if you weren't here for that or you need a refresher, uh, there's plenty of material online from that series that I can send you to. But we're doing this because we want to understand the message of Jesus, what it is that he came to tell us, what he came to call us to do, because that's part of our great commission, part of what we're sent into the world to do as we seek to be and to make disciples. Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew's Gospel to make disciples baptising them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey his commands. So we want to know what those commands are, don't we? To be a disciple is not just to believe that Jesus is God with us and the resurrected King who brings forgiveness of sins, 
but to obey the commands of Jesus, to listen to him. This is what faith looks like. And so I wonder this morning as we begin this journey, if you had to sum up the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus we find it in Matthew's Gospel, I wonder what you'd say. Uh, What's the essence of these words of God's word in the flesh, of God with us? What's the essence of the words that he speaks, these words that give life? Maybe it's a call to repent, you think, to to turn from sin and be forgiven. Maybe that's the message of the gospel. Maybe it's Jesus' command to love that's centred in your mind. If someone asks you to sum up the message of the gospel in a sentence, uh, what would you say that Jesus came to tell us? There we go. I figured out how to turn the page. It's good. See, here's a fun thing. Uh, This is a word cloud of the red letter parts of Matthew's gospel uh, where the size of the word indicates how frequently it's used in the gospel. And you might have guessed that love was at the heart of the message of Jesus, but if you're looking for love up here, it's just here between one and tell. It's a very small part of the message of Jesus in terms of frequency. Uh, Forgiveness or sin, you might have thought they were going to be emphasised. They're important ideas, but they aren't marked out as important by their frequency in his speech. Now, this word cloud, it doesn't weigh words based on emphasis, based on how important they are when he uses them. And so love and forgiveness, those are important words. Sin, it's an important concept to get our head around. But if you look at what Jesus emphasises in his preaching in the gospel, uh, and it's probably worth us paying attention to this, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God more than anything else in Matthew's gospel. 50 times in Matthew's Gospel he talks about the kingdom. And here in the passage that Robbins has read for us, as Jesus begins to preach, see how Matthew summarises his preaching, the message that Jesus brings? Repent, turn to him from your prior way of life because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so we're dipping into Matthew chapter 3. There's been a bit of a story so far, a setting of the scene before Jesus begins to speak, and it's worth seeing a bit of that story to understand how these words work for us. So Matthew opens up his gospel with a genealogy. If you are here a few weeks ago, uh, Doug talked to us about how big and important this genealogy is, but it's a, a family tree and it shows us how the story of Jesus connects to the story of Israel, of God's nation, his kingdom. Jesus is positioned in this genealogy as the Messiah, That's the first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus, the anointed promised king the world's been waiting for, the king of God's kingdom. Jesus, we're told, the son of David, the king in the Old Testament who brought God's kingdom to God's place, and the son of Abraham, the patriarch of God's people. So Matthew gives us these three points in Israel's history to help us understand Jesus. Abraham, the man God promised, would be the father of a nation, the father of a kingdom, and he would use Abraham, he promised to restore blessing to the world. And then David, who wasn't just the king of God's people, but the king whose family tree God promised would produce a king who'd rule God's kingdom forever. And then we get exile to Babylon, these three moments in the story. And in this moment, God's nation, Israel, is taken into captivity and exile, cut off from God's blessing and his presence left wondering at the end of the Old Testament if God's kingdom is ever going to happen. 
And then in Matthew's Gospel, as we approach our reading from today, John the Baptist turns up as a prophet, dressed like an Old Testament prophet, speaking like an Old Testament prophet, preaching in the wilderness exactly the message Jesus then preaches. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's this message that exile from God is about to end because the kingdom of heaven is about to turn up with the Messiah. And then Jesus turns up to the Jordan, and the Jordan's a significant river. It's the river Israel crossed as they became God's chosen people, his nation in the Exodus story. And he comes there so that he might be baptised, so that he might be washed in the Jordan. Israel, Israel's story is being reenacted here. Jesus is the new Israel going through a new Exodus. And the first words Jesus speaks in Matthew, the first time those red letters pop up, are at his baptism where John is hesitant and where Jesus says, no, I'm going to go into this water. You're going to baptise me in and out of this water, this Jordan River, to fulfil all righteousness. And from this point on, he's going to show what the real Israel, the real people of God, his real kingdom will look like in contrast to all the people who've come before. And so he's there in the water, down and up in the water, baptised. And at that moment, heaven is opened and God's spirit descends onto Jesus and God's voice from the heavens declares Jesus as his beloved son. Now, there are echoes here in this language of what God says of Israel back in the Exodus story. As Israel has been called out of Egypt, God calls Israel, his people, his son. We're just going to take a quick dive into some Old Testament background here to see exactly how Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness at this point in his baptism. See, later in Exodus, God calls Israel his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests. The Exodus is where God creates a people through the waters of the Jordan as a kingdom of priests called out of the nations of the world to be his holy nation, to represent him in the world. Uh, in Deuteronomy, this role comes with a responsibility to worship God only, to not worship the gods of the nations, to not worship idols, to not worship created things because they've come out of the smelting furnace, out of the fire, out of Egypt. This exodus is a process of creation. This is the sort of process you'd use in the ancient world for metalwork to make an idol statue. And here's God saying, you've come through that furnace, you've been forged as my people to be my inheritance, my image-bearing priestly people. And they'll go through the waters of the Jordan to become his people, his kingdom, his image-bearing nation. But, Deuteronomy says, if they disobey if they don't listen to God, if they are tempted to worship smelted idols like the nations do, then God will scatter them among the nations. They'll be exiled. It'll be like they're back in Egypt. They won't be God's special people anymore. They'll be melted down and cast out. Uh, his kingdom of blessing, well, it's not going to come through them. They're not going to be a blessing to the nations. They're going to become like the nations. And the prophet Jeremiah picks up this language from Exodus and Deuteronomy to say that instead of being blessed when this happens so they can bring blessing to people, when God's people disobey the commands, the terms of God's covenant, they will be cursed, cursed instead of blessed. It's the, the decision that God's people face in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, do they choose blessing and life or curse and exile and death? 
And so the first words Jesus speaks in his baptism are about righteousness, they're about listening. Whereas Jeremiah says, Judah, the southern kingdom like Israel, the northern kingdom before them, they're going to experience curse. They've been unrighteous. They've been warned over and over and over again since the exodus from Egypt. But the people of God's kingdom, they're meant to listen to God, but here they face judgment and curse because they did not listen or pay attention. Jeremiah tells us instead they followed their evil hearts. And so now God is bringing, instead of blessing, he is bringing curse. Instead of his people being a kingdom of priests who represent him, his image-bearing nation, they are cast out, experiencing all the curses of the covenant that he's commanded them to keep. And so they're going into exile. And this, in Jeremiah, is a result of their idolatry, their hearts being given to other gods, following other gods. Both Israel and Judah failed to listen to God, not living as God's kingdom of priests because they worship other gods and that causes disaster. The kingdom falls apart. They go into exile. So when Jesus, God with us, arrives and John the Baptist says the kingdom is near and Jesus is baptised through the Jordan and recreated, presented as this people of God, the son whom God loves, these are signs that the exile is finishing, that those curses are giving way to blessing, that exile is being done away with, with a kingdom of God arriving through its king. As we see in this next scene that Robin read for us, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus shows us what it looks like to listen to God and to worship God. We get another little Exodus reenactment as Jesus goes into the wilderness. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Here Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And this isn't the only 40 symbolism in the Old Testament. In the Noah story, the rain comes for 40 days and 40 nights, that same period that Jesus is in the wilderness. Now there's an interesting rabbit hole that we won't go down fully here where you can see both the Noah story and Israel's entry into the promised land through the Jordan, that movement through water, as new Eden moments, moments of recreation where there's a chance for a new humanity to emerge from those waters, replacing a fallen sinful humanity where people have stopped listening to God. It's part of the Noah story. It's part of Israel being created as a nation, a kingdom of priests, after humanity turned its back on God. It's a way that God works to restore people from exile from his presence, this new life through waters, a new humanity emerging through waters, a bit like baptism. There are rich Old Testament pictures in the background of this back and forth then between Jesus and the devil, Jesus reliving these recreation moments, and we're wondering, will he or won't he? Will he be just like those in the Old Testament who fell? Or will he do something different? Will he bring God's kingdom? The idea of the kingdom of God happening through God's image-bearing sons and daughters, it actually begins back in Genesis 1. There's a bunch of this idea of being made in God's image and what this calling in Genesis 1 is a calling to, and we'll be looking at that in more detail in term 2 when we look at Genesis. But to be an image-bearer is to be a child of God, a chip off the old block, And it's to represent God as these living images, living idol statues, as we rule with God and obey his commands, as we listen to him. 
And this idea of being blessed by God is there in the first page of the Bible, blessed and sent into the world to fruitfully fill the kingdom with his image and rule. This is the idea of the kingdom of God. This command in Genesis 1 is a kingdom commission that's a lot like, if you look at it carefully, the Great Commission, seeing image bearers, disciples of Jesus, spread their presence over the face of the earth, spreading the presence of God over the face of the earth by filling the earth with his image-bearing people. Then Adam and Eve are placed in Eden and they don't listen to God when they are tempted by Satan. So here in our passage in Matthew, we've got a reenactment of this interaction in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent, the tempter, turns up, the one who is more crafty than the other animals, and he tempts the woman, Eve. Did God really say, he says. Did God really say? And Adam and Eve, well, they fail to represent God and speak his words. They fail in the task of being image bearers, of being children of God at this point, of bringing God's kingdom and speaking God's word, and they sin. And so Adam and Eve bring curse rather than blessing and thorns rather than fruitfulness, and they get banished from the fruitful land God gave them to rule and to expand, just like Israel would do in the promised land later. And so we're asking, as Jesus is tempted by the devil, is history going to repeat itself here? Or will Jesus do better, better than Israel in the land who are told not to worship other gods or they'll be exiled or better than Adam and Eve in the garden when exile followed their disobedience, their inability to listen to God and show what it is to worship him as his image-bearing people? And we get these three back and forths between Jesus and Satan that show us exactly that Jesus is the righteous image-bearing king, the kingdom of God in the flesh who listens to God and obeys him and worships him. His words, these red-letter words, come straight from the pages of the Bible. Jesus speaks straight from Deuteronomy, the law that God's king was meant to take to heart, that was meant to shape the life of God's kingdom. So when Satan, the tempter, turns up and says, don't trust God to feed you when you're hungry, take things into your own hands, turn these rocks into bread, Jesus says, well, it's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here he is not just giving this as an answer, but modelling living on the word that comes from God. Because these are words that do come straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, are referring back to God providing bread in the wilderness for his people and, and the way that was meant to teach them to rely on God's word for life, on a relationship with God for their life because he will provide. And then the devil takes him to the roof of the temple, the the pinnacle of the building that was on the top of the mountain in Jerusalem, a a building that represents heaven meeting earth, and Jesus and the devil are on the highest point of that building. And he says, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down from this point where the heavens meet the earth and God will catch you. He'll send his angels to catch you. And again, Jesus replies, it is also written, He's not coming out with his own original thinking at this point. It's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. This again comes straight out of Deuteronomy 6, another passage that tells the story of the Exodus, Israel's creation as a people from slavery in Egypt. And then Satan takes him to an even higher point, a very high mountain, a cosmic place where all the kingdoms of the world can be seen. 
Satan's offering him the key to all these earthly kingdoms, the choice between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, these kingdoms are all going to belong to God's Messiah anyway, just like being like God was something Adam and Eve already had in the garden. Satan's tempting Jesus to go the easy way, to grab hold of something that God is going to give him as he obediently stays in relationship to his father. And here Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written. Again and again he quotes Deuteronomy, and this bit comes from a bit earlier in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is what God's people were meant to do. Say no to Satan, say no to sin, say no to temptation, because we worship the Lord, we love him with our whole hearts, and we serve him only. And this is Jesus speaking the words of God over and over again because he listens to God. It is written, he says three times. This is the mantra of the faithful child of God, the one who listens to God and so speaks the word of God as the language of his heart. The one who listens to God and so knows God, knows God so well that he knows his father who he loves is not holding back his goodness, that he isn't a miser, that the grass isn't greener on Satan's side, that idols don't deliver, they just deceive us and pull us from God and destroy us. This is a king, a son of God, an Israelite, an image-bearing ruler who shows us what it is to reflect God's nature and rule in the world in partnership with God as he models worshipping him. Then we get this weird bit in the story where Jesus even picks a new town to live in just to model obedience and knowledge of God's word, to fulfil what was said through the prophets. He packs up from Nazareth and he goes to live in Capernaum. And there he starts preaching the message of the gospel. Repent because God's kingdom has arrived. And God's kingdom has arrived because God's king has arrived. The one who faithfully bears his image in the world. The one who is going to show what it looks like to be fruitful and multiply as he creates a kingdom through his obedience. As he brings blessing instead of curse. As he leads a people out of exile from God away from the clutches of Satan and the idolatrous empires that destroy us and into this new exodus, into a new promised land, the kingdom of heaven. And so what do we do with these words of Jesus as we read them in Matthew's gospel? Both the example we see in his red-letter words here and his interaction with Satan and his command as he begins his preaching. These words that give life and his message, the call to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is an invitation for us to join it, to join him. Now, often we think about repentance as turning around, that's what it means, but we think of it as turning away from the wrong thing we've been doing. For Jesus, it's it's probably more about turning to this right thing. The turning away will flow out of that, but it's repenting because we see the grandeur and the glory of the kingdom, the kingdom that brings fruitfulness and blessing, and we want to take part. We, we see God's beloved son, this king, and we are drawn in. And as we become people who bear the image of God and worship him, we don't want to worship those other things that lead us to death, that lead us to exile and destruction, our sin. We want to turn away from those things, but because we've grounded ourselves in his kingdom, to turn to and receive this new king who will lead us 
out of exile and into a new exodus, a new way of life, life as God's people and his kingdom again. This is this invitation. Repentance is going to mean being able to say no to the tempter. That's something Israel couldn't do in its history. And they even had God's word in their scriptures, as we do. It's something that Adam and Eve couldn't do in the first pages of the Bible, even with God's words ringing in their ears as he spoke to them. Repentance is going to mean being able to answer those who want to twist God's word to lead us away from God. Those who come wanting to justify a new way of life. Did God really say? Does he really mean it when he says that thing that's hard? Those who promise to give us what our sinful hearts want by making us believe that God is for something that he's against or that God is holding back something good from us, something he should just be giving us if he really loved us. See, this is what temptation looks like when the devil's at work. This misrepresentation of God, this invitation to worship something else and receive the kingdom of the world now without the obedience God calls us to, a twisting or spinning of God's word. Satan even quotes God's word to Jesus in these temptations. And this is what leads to sin, to disobedience, but it's not just about believing the wrong thing or acting the wrong way, believing that God says something he doesn't or doesn't say something he does. Ultimately, it's about loving the wrong stuff. What was it that led Israel astray? It was worshipping false gods. It was their sinful hearts. Temptation works by tapping into our desires, desires that are often so sinful because they come from these hearts broken by sin, cursed, sinful hearts that want to replace the living God and the life he gives with all sorts of things, idols that are dead and lead to death. See, Satan promises so much. He promises the whole world. He promises everything, but he delivers nothing. Our temptation to give our lives to things other than God are built on believing this lie, but we get what we want for a moment, maybe if we're lucky, and then it's gone. And then we face death and judgment and exile from God. So this is the dynamic at play. Anytime you want to put yourself in charge of your life, anytime you want the Bible to say something it doesn't to justify the longings of your heart, or you just don't care what God says because you're in control. You want to be God because what God says is at odds with what you believe to be good and you don't want to embrace the costly obedience that you're called to. It leads to exile. When we don't listen to God, just like Israel and Adam and Eve, it leads to curse. The curse that comes with sin is death and it's exile from God's presence. Exile from the kingdom of heaven, from the new Eden. That's where we find ourselves without God's king, leading us into his kingdom, leading us by example as he listens to God's word. So how would you take up this example of Jesus, God's king, his faithful son? What are you doing? What are we doing to soak ourselves in God's word? So that together we know God's word we know God's goodness and his love through what he reveals of himself to us so that we can say no to the schemes of the tempter who wants to pull you away to worship anything but God. So you aren't going to know God or know his word unless you read it or listen to it or sing it or talk about it. And you're not going to have it come to the tip of your tongue in these moments unless you're both marinating in it and delighting in it. 
not just reading out of some sort of obedience, some sense of piety, this sense that we have to do this, but reading it because we want to do this because we love the God it reveals to us. Because in it we know his love for us and he is a good God who is not holding things back. Reading it and delighting in it because you want to know God more. That's what Jesus is modelling here, love for God, a heart devoted to God, a heart that listens to God and so says no to worshipping other things, no to being led away from a heart that is evil. See, we keep loving stuff God says is forbidden. God forbids in his word. We keep using our own words to self-justify and listening to voices who say, did God really say, instead of just listening to God. And this leads to disaster. And the solution in these moments, these moments of temptation, is knowing what God actually says so the words aren't just coming to our lips but shaping our hearts. Not just knowing God's word, Satan quotes it too, but obeying God's word in relationship with him as his people. See, repentance, this joining the kingdom, is going to look like listening to God, listening to his invitation to come home, turning to God and worshipping him, listening to his love for you, loving him in return. So we no longer worship other gods, so we're no longer led to death by an evil heart, tempted that way by Satan, led by these words that are twisted Instead, we want to be led by the words that give life, the words of Jesus, because not only is the kingdom of God come near in Jesus, it has now come through Jesus. So the problem is all of this stuff that I've just talked about, it all sounds so easy, but the catch is we actually need new hearts. Israel had God's word and they couldn't do it. Israel had God's word, but they didn't have God's spirit living in them to recreate a new heart. We can't just choose obedience by ourselves. We need a new exodus. We need God saving us and recreating us, which is the good news of the gospel for us because God does this for us in Jesus. In that exchange with John the Baptist in chapter 3, just before our reading, John says Jesus is going to be the one who comes and baptises not with water but with the Holy Spirit, comes creating a new people, a new kingdom. And we see this in his life and his death and his resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. We see in Jesus the one who speaks the word of God because he's the Son of God, because he's God with us, the one who speaks the words that give life because he is the word who gives life. And at the end of this story, Matthew, we're going to see him give his life and we'll share in remembering that moment together as we share communion. We're going to see him give his life as the ultimate demonstration of obedience to God the ultimate fulfilling of all righteousness. He he shows us what it looks like to not grasp the kingdoms of this world, to to not give in to temptation from the evil one, to have it all now. As he takes the crown of thorns, a picture of the curse, the thorns and thistles of the curse, and as he takes the weight of our sin and God's wrath on the cross, and then as God's kingdom does come. Because there in that moment, God's king is enthroned, first on a cross, with that crown, and then as he ascends in glory and the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth becomes his. Because did you see that when I had the Great Commission up before? The basis of Jesus' words to us to go and make disciples as his kingdom, as these people who have been reshaped, recreated, given the spirits, people who have been baptised into this new way of life, Jesus starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
exactly what Satan promised he could have if he took the shortcut. God gives him because he is faithful, because he fulfills all righteousness. Here is Jesus as the ruler of the heavens and the earth, the king of God's kingdom, inviting us to join in, to get with the program, to become and make disciples, image-bearing people who show the world what God is like because we listen to him. So if we put our faith in Jesus, God's son, as our king, we get our own Jordan experience, our own exodus, our return from exile. We get recreated through baptism, not just by water but by God's spirit. And if we live as part of God's kingdom, listening to and obeying his word as the people of the new covenant brought through his blood, then we aren't exiled from God, but God is with us always, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, always leading us to life with him in the kingdom of heaven that he brings. See, that's good news. That's the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is here and you're invited to join it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would hear the words of our Lord that we would be people who are marked by repentance, a turning from the things that our wicked hearts make us want to love in your place, the things that lead to exile from you and to death and to destruction, not just for us, but in the way we treat other people around us and the way we treat your world. Lord, we pray that we would hear this call to repent and that we would know that we can't do that on our own. And so we pray that we might trust our Lord Jesus to lead us into this new kingdom, to unite us in his righteousness as he pours your spirit out to unite us, not just with him, but with you, so that we might be your children again, children with new hearts who are now being transformed into the image of Jesus as we seek to obey his words. And so, Lord, we pray for us as a community that your word would be at the heart of all we do, that we would soak in it, that not only would we feel it like a, a weight that calls us to a certain way of life, but that we would delight in it because it reveals you to us. We pray that in listening to you and in our obedience to what we hear you say to us through your word, we would be a light and life to the world, that we would be people who are part of this task of spreading your kingdom as we make disciples, as we see you bring people from death to life. We pray that we might see that in our own lives, that the gospel, the good news, would be good news for us because we have put our trust in your son and so receive forgiveness and new life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.